Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled to have with me today Dr. John Fiaggio, who is the Associate Anesthetist-in-Chief at Boston Children's Hospital in Boston. And I heard John give a really interesting talk about behavioral economics. And you may be thinking, well, great, but what does that have to do with anesthesiology? But that's the best part, is that John has really taken an interest in this and how it applies to our work in anesthesiology, and he's going to talk a little bit with us about that today. So, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Jed, I'm super excited to be here. I've always wanted to be on a podcast, so this is great. So thanks for having me. <laughs> oh, well, I'm thrilled that ACREC is your first. So um, let's start with you. Tell, tell us a little bit about your background, kind of how you ended up where you are in terms of your career, and then also, of course, how you got interested in this field of behavioral economics. Yeah, so I started out as an engineering undergrad who then decided, mainly probably because of peer pressure, because I went to Johns Hopkins University, everybody there is pre-med. I ended up going to medical school at Northwestern and I wanted to be a urologist. And there's a long story of how I ended up in anesthesia, but then wanted to focus on pediatric anesthesia. I did my fellowship training at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and stayed on there for about 16 years and just recently made the transition to Boston Children's Hospital, which has been quite exciting. You know, one of the big things is now I have to become a Red Sox and a Patriots fan, which uh, my friends in Philly are not too excited about. So yeah, I'm a pediatric focused uh, individual. Yeah, and been doing pediatric anesthesia for, for a while now. That's great. And I did not know about the Hopkins connection, but that's fun that you were an undergrad at Hopkins. It does feel like a lot of focus in the undergrad here on the pre-med track. I agree with you there. Yeah, I was biomedical engineering and everybody was going to med med school. So that's that's how it goes. There's there's probably a behavioral economic thing there of, you know, being influenced by the crowd. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, whereas 
I think at one point Hopkins undergrad had a, a reputation for being quite um, kind of cutthroat in its pre-med track. But um, I think that's mellowed out over time. I don't know what your experience was when you were here. And you certainly don't have to comment on that if you don't want. Yeah, no, it was known to be cutthroat at that time. It, it was, but, but I enjoyed it. It was some of my best years of uh, education and training. I really enjoyed Hopkins. Yeah. Well, great. That's great to hear. So, all right, let's turn to your interest in behavioral economics. And it, I guess it might be helpful if you want to just define that for us first. What is behavioral economics and, and then how did you get interested in it? Yeah, so behavioral economics kind of studies how psychology affects decision making and behavior. And, you know, I would say the emphasis is on the word uh, on the word observe, observing uh, behavior and I, I talk about two tennis players, um, just as an illustration. I have been, I'm a tennis player and I'm really uh, been a fan of tennis. And I used to watch Boris Becker um, and Andre Agassi battle it out on a tennis court when I was growing up. And Becker used to dominate Andre Agassi until Andre Agassi observed something. He noticed that when Becker went in to serve, he would stick his tongue out in the direction he was going to serve. And so Andre, after that, Andre never lost a match to Becker again. And so just that observation uh, was key for him. And later on, recently, he was telling uh, Boris Becker, did you know you did that thing with your tongue and gave away your serve? And Becker was like, oh, my gosh, I used to go home and tell my wife. It's almost like this guy's reading my mind, but really he was reading his tongue. So behavioral economics is about observation. Standard economics says we are rational players. We do things to maximize our utility. Behavioral economics says in some decisions, we're irrational and we can predict that irrationality. So we observe the influence of environment on behavior. So yeah, I got really interested in this after reading a few books. Yeah, so so interesting, right? Because you you wouldn't if you just described what you just described and you you said who would be interested in this? People would probably say, oh, maybe a psychiatrist, right? But they wouldn't necessarily think someone who's a pediatric anesthesiologist. So it really it sounds like you developed this interest independent at, at first of your job. You read some books; they were interesting and got interested right. in, the, in the subject. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I read Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, which was really the one that really sparked my my interest. I had been I had been listening to the Freakonomics podcast, and they talk a lot about a lot of these concepts. And I read Thinking Fast and Slow, and it sort of brought it all together for me. Um, and then I read Predictably Irrational by Daniel Raeli. Now, Daniel Kahneman is a psychologist, and he got the Nobel Prize for this work in economics. I mean, that's like, you know, an anesthesiologist getting the prize in, I don't know, mathematics or something. Right. And, and so he talked about two systems of thinking. He talked about system one being a fast system of thinking and system two being a more slow, deliberative system of thinking. And I realized that when we're operating in medicine, we're in the operating room, a lot of times we're using system one, but sometimes we need to slow down and use system two. 
So I can give you an example of this. Yeah, please so do. So Kahneman talks about a bat and a ball together cost a dollar and ten cents. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. And the bat, how much does a ball cost is the question he asked. And if you instinctively hear that, you think 10 cents. But if you actually do the math and slow down and use system two, you realize that it's actually five cents. So this whole, you know, I got interested with the fact that we're often operating in this fast system of thinking. Sometimes we slow down, but when do we know when to slow down? And there's the analogy from the Eastern philosophy of a, a rider on an elephant. The rider thinks they're making the decisions, but really the, emo- the, the elephant, which, rep- which represents our emotional minds, our heuristic thinking, actually, when the elephant decides something, the rider has no control. So got really fascinated with that. Yeah, it's, I've also read that book and I found it fascinating too. So, so the idea, right, is that we have these shortcuts or heuristics that helped us evolve and survive, right? Tiger coming at you in the, you know, in the jungle, run away, um, right. right? Or, or even the fast moving footstep sound equals tiger equals run away, right? Like these were survival things. And most of right. the time that would be accurate. If it turned out that that fast moving footsteps was actually, you know, a, an elk that you could have shot and eaten, then that would be a, uh, it would have served you poorly, but usually you want to run because it's good. If it's a tiger, you you need to get away. Right. And so we develop these things and now they sometimes serve us well and sometimes don't. And you, you gave an example with the math of where if you just do the quick thinking, you actually get it wrong. And there's, right. there's other examples like that. Are there things that you think apply specifically to anesthesiology that are maladaptive kind of um, fast thinking? Yeah. So, um, Marjorie Stiegler wrote a nice uh, article in the Anesthesiology Journal, I think that was in 2014, that summarized a lot of these principles and then made connections with what we do in anesthesia. Um, And there's a, a tendency called the representativeness heuristic where something is representative of some condition you've seen in the past. And so you automatically come up with a diagnosis because you've seen this before. But that bias sometimes causes us to not look at other information that may be useful in coming to the the correct diagnosis. So she gives an example in the article of two situations. And along with that also is an and uh, uh, ignoring, so one of the things that happens when you have this representative, representativeness effect is that you tend to ignore the base rate of the condition, so how common it is. So she gives this example of a statement, and the question is, which statement is more likely? Mr. F has had one or more heart attacks, or Mr. F is over 55 years old and has had one or more heart attacks. Most people will pick the second condition where he's older than 55 years old, but that's clearly a subset of that first condition. Um, So that's an example. And she gives an example of an OB patient who's post-C-section 
who becomes hypotensive and hypoxic. And there's also some information that she's not been getting her sub-Q heparin. And they ask, which is more likely, she likely to have a PE and most people think PE, but really she's post a C-section and the most common thing is a, is a post-op bleed. Um, and so, so these, these thinking patterns come into play when we actually take care of patients. And there are other examples. There, there are things like anchoring. So I tell you, I visited uh, Jordan and decided I was going to go to Petra, this Asian city, to, to look around. And on our, on our way to Petra, we stopped at this shop to buy some souvenirs. And as we walked in the shop, the shop owner starts to wrap our heads in these turbans. And um, so he says, oh, you might want to take these as a souvenir home. And I asked him, how much are they? And he says, these are hand-woven, especially for the prints. They are $200. So I laughed and I said, you know what? That's okay. We'll, we'll keep shopping. So we buy all these souvenirs and we're checking out. We bought a bunch of stuff and he comes up to me and he says, you know what? You guys seem like good people. I'm going to give you a really good discount today. He's like, I'm going to give you this, these, these scarves for $20 from $220. And I said, oh, yeah, I'll buy so I bought a couple. We get to Petra and we get out the van and there are all these stalls sell, selling the same exact scarf. And I go up and I'm like, how much is, how much are you selling these for? And he said, $3. And that's the power of anchoring. You get anchored to this larger number. Salespeople use it all the time. But there's a thought that you can get anchored to a condition when you're taking care of a patient. So you have a patient, you can ventilate easily. Ventilation becomes difficult. And uh, instead of moving to the definitive thing, you keep thinking, I can get back there. And a lot of times we can, but sometimes we can't. And that anchoring effect keeps us looking to that prior condition. Yeah, that's such an interesting one. You know, I, I think it applies so often. I, I imagine situations, and I'm sure I did this as a trainee, where, you know, everything's going great. And then kind of all of a sudden the patient starts to deset and you, and sometimes your first instinct is to say, Oh, it's not real right? <laughs> because you, cause it wasn't five minutes ago. Everything was fine. Correct. And you're kind of anchored on that idea that everything is fine. This is a healthy patient. The anesthetic's going well, there's nothing going wrong. And you, you know, I'm sure there's other things going on, like a fear of something bad happening and not wanting that to be the case, but you're also anchored on this prior reality and maybe slow then to pick up on, on something else. I'm curious, going back to your OB example of the, of the kind of likelihood of a post-op bleed being much higher than a post-op PE, and obviously the treatment for those two things being very different, so right. needing to be really careful. Do you think we, in medical education, make this worse? Because, you know, when we take trainees to the sim lab, for example, right, we never have the healthy patient where nothing's wrong, right? We, I mean, it's always the zebra that we're practicing, right? Yes. And so... Do you think we set up a situation where people are going to, you know, they've been to the, they've gone through their training. We, we focus in training, especially in sim, on the uncommon things for, because they're uncommon, right? They, we want our trainees to see them sometime. They're unlikely to see them in real life. So we expose them to them in the simulation center. And then they might anchor on those things. And then they see that tachycardia post-op and they think in a patient who maybe didn't get their sub-Q heparin, oh my goodness, it's a PE. 
um, because you know, they'd the, had a PE in sim. Yeah, I think you're right. I, that's a very good point. And there is, there is some data, some behavioral economic studies that show that there's a recency bias. The thing that you experienced the most recently, you recall the easiest, and that's the first thing you kind of consider. So certainly there is that effect. I, and, and, you know, we'll talk about how you get around these things, but I certainly think there's probably something to that. Yeah. The fact that we focus on these rare events, but those are the events that we don't get to experience enough. And so you need to practice. And so there's a little bit of a dichotomy, but, but I think it's important to, to continue to train people in rare events, but to also understand that we've got to take other information into consideration. And actually I think, you know, we'll talk about all these different biases, but can you overcome them individually? I'm not sure, but what I've always focused on is that it's important to listen to other people who are observing what's happening because they may not be caught in that cognitive trap. Mm. I think that's one of the important keys. Yeah. I love that. I want to hear more um, of the biases, uh, but I want to ask you about um, where else do you think we may anchor? And one that comes to mind is blood pressure. I wonder if, and this, you know, maybe a little different, but maybe not. I just don't do peds. And so I'm not sure, but you know, I know blood pressure in little like babies is different than adults, but I'm thinking about adults and how we, you know, you could have someone, for example, who might have a blood pressure that's very high in the preoperative area, let's say, because they're nervous and stressed and, you know, whatever. Um, and you in your head might think, ah, I need to keep them you know, I'm, you might anchor on that number and think I need to keep them really high, whereas actually they may not normally live there. Or, um, you know, I guess on the other end, you could imagine where somebody, you might have a, a series of lower blood pressures after induction and somehow get anchored on that and think, oh, well, you know, as long as I get them up to, uh, you know, some number that's higher than that, I'm okay. Uh, do you think we do that with vital signs that we anchor? Absolutely. I, I think those are those are really good ones. Yeah, I think that's probably comes into play in our decision making as well. Um, and it's hard to know whether, you know, if you've got that high blood pressure, it could be anxiety or it could be just the, the patient's hypertensive. And if you're anchored to that, maybe that's a good thing, right? So, right. And, but if it's because they're anxious and it's just transient, maybe that's not so good. Same with the lower blood pressures, but th- those are certainly really good uh, examples of of this effect. Yeah. Okay, great. So tell tell me some more biases you think play a role, and and then we'll get to the your ideas. Of yeah. How so we can I think address them. one of the things that I think comes into play is loss aversion, and loss aversion basically says that the pain from a loss is greater than the pleasure from an equivalent gain. So if I take $10 away from you, the pain from that is greater than me giving you $10. And it's interesting, there's some studies that show that people take longer to leave a parking spot if someone's waiting, right? There's there's a sense of ownership. They don't wanna give it up. Um, so loss aversion can come into play when you're taking care of a patient. So for example, there's a patient who needs a fiber optic intubation, but you haven't done one in a long time. And 
you know they need a fiber optic intubation, but you really don't want to call a colleague who knows how to do it, who has had more experience to help you because you're worried about loss of reputation, uh, maybe. And so you decide, you know what, it's going to be fine. I'm just going to use a direct laryngoscope. And, you know, you encounter some, you know, issues and, and complications. So your, you know, your aversion to the loss of reputation has now influenced your behavior and your patient care. Um, so that would be an example of that. Um, yeah. So the, you know, loss aversion, anchoring, um, there's something called a peak end rule and Daniel Kahneman did a really interesting study where they looked at patients getting GI endoscopy and they asked them to document their pain scores throughout their endoscopy. Some patients had an hour long endoscopy and some had a 20 minute endoscopy. In the hour long group, they had a significant amount of pain for you know 45 minutes. And then the last 15 minutes, it got better and there was very little pain. And in the 20 minute group, they had very little pain for 15 minutes, then they had a spike at the end. And I'm generalizing a little bit on the study results, but this is kind of the pattern that they found. And it was interesting, the hour long endoscopy group was more likely to say they would, they would have another endoscopy. So Kahneman then said, you know what? The end of a procedure matters a lot more than the entirety of the procedure. So the peak effect that occurs or discomfort, patients remember, and the end matters. And I don't think that's something we talk about in anesthesia. And after I read that, it changed my practice around putting in IVs, doing epidurals, doing a mask induction. I will prolong my IV placement. If my patient's very uncomfortable when I put the IV in, just prolong it. You know, take a little while to dress it, you know, put dab some benzone, whatever you're gonna do, just extend it and they have a better experience. So there are two patients. There's the experiencing patient and there's a remembering patient. And we don't think about what the patient remembers. So change my practice, mask induction. I try to make it pleasant. Um, uh, and we can get into the nocebo and placebo effect, which I can talk about later. But, but yeah, so that's that's another one of those things. So the peak end rule and loss aversion are, are two others um, that I think come into play in what we do. Yeah, interesting. And and I think that's so, it's so interesting that it's changed your practice in that way. And when you say you draw out the IV, you, you know that it, there's a point of pain in there. So if there's longer without pain towards the end, then you know they're going to remember that part or they're going to focus on that part. Correct. That's yeah. that's the thinking. Same with, you know, epidurals. You know, if your patient's very uncomfortable with the epidural insertion, take your time in dressing it. Just, you know, just, and, you know, uh, uh, and, and use positive uh, language. That's another thing. So, then everybody knows about the placebo effect. You know, I give you an inert thing and, and you know, you, you believe there's a benefit and you have that benefit, but the, I call it the evil cousin of the placebo effect is the nocebo effect. We don't talk about enough in medicine. And, you know, the nocebo effect is I give you an inert medicine and you think there's going to be a negative outcome and you experience that negative outcome. Right. There's actually data that shows that if you tell a patient that they're more likely to have post-subnausia, if you tell them they're going to have post-subnausia vomiting, they're more likely to have it. Um, and so there was a really nice study done uh, 
uh, looking at women who were coming in for labor epidurals and they randomized them to two conditions. One group, they said, I'm putting in the numbing medicine now. In the other group, they said, you're gonna feel a little pinch and a burn. This is the worst part of the procedure. The group that had the uh, nocebo language reported significantly more pain for the epidural placement. But what was interesting, that extended into their perioperative period. So I no longer tell children that I'm gonna give them a stinky mask or you know, I tell them I use positive language. And I was surprised at the number of children. When I say, some people say they smell chocolate, some people smell, you know, vanilla. How many children tell me they smell vanilla? You know, when we all know that, you know, that's, that's not what they're getting. And so some people have ethical concerns and say, you're telling them something that's not true, but really part of what they experience comes from the brain. And so, we have that ability to influence that. Yeah, that's so interesting. I actually worked with a resident recently who, uh, senior resident, and uh, would tell tell patients when the propofol was going in, you're going to feel some sunshine in your IV now. And right. I loved that. I loved yes. that. I never had heard that. But, you know, I think that's exactly right, is that, you know, it, it, there's different ways to describe that feeling of the propofol going in. And if you say it's going to burn, then, you know, that it's, it's more burn. likely to burn probably. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So yeah, the nocebo effect has been one that that I've been fascinated, you know, about and uh, incorporated some of the lessons from that. Now, you know, I wonder how we think about that when it comes to consent, right? So you can imagine that there's if you tell patients about, like, let's use your example of post-op nausea and vomiting, right? If you list post-op nausea and vomiting as one of the you know, side effects or potential side effects of anesthesia, then as you said, they may be more likely to have it. So what's the solution? Do we not tell them? Do we phrase it in a different way? Yeah. So, so the, 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 the thought I had about that was to say, you know, there's several side effects from this anesthetic. I can tell you all of them if you would like, but just by me telling you about some of these, makes it more likely that you're going to have it. That way you, you, you put the decision-making back on the patient. The patient decides whether they want to hear this or not. And I feel you could document that, you know, I offered them the option to discuss all the details and they agreed not to discuss them. And some people may want to know and you tell them. But uh, that's kind of been my thinking. I don't know if legally that's entirely... Uh, kosher, but I should really investigate that. But I, it makes sense to me that that would be acceptable. Yeah. And, you know, I, obviously people will will check with their own hospital kind of, um, you know, guidelines around consent, but it makes sense, right? That yeah. if we are we really giving patients a choice if we just tell them, you know, what they may or may not want to hear? Maybe it's actually more respectful um, and ethical to give them the option of hearing these things, right? Because you could imagine if you're there for, you know, a, a uh, cancer surgery, you know, I mean, yes, in theory, you could opt out, but are you really going to opt out because someone tells you you might get nauseous afterwards, right? right. So exactly. I'm not sure that we're doing patients a lot of, you know, uh, good by telling them that if it increases the risk of it happening and they're not going to, you know, the chances that they decide based on that to not have the surgery are so incredibly low. So it's a really interesting thing to think about. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned um, loss aversion, 
that is so interesting. And as you were telling that story about, um, or giving the example about uh, the airway, it made me think about, uh, you know, imposter syndrome in general and how loss aversion plays such a role there is that, you know, so many people in medicine, especially trainees, but I think even beyond are, have this idea that, you know, it's just a matter of time before somebody finds out that they're not actually good enough to be where they are. And I think that fear of losing, like you said, respect, reputation, their position, uh, is pretty intense. And that can lead to, like you said, not asking for help when you might need it, not asking a question when you aren't sure about something because of that fear of losing face. So how do we get around that? You know, what, what, what is the, and I know you prefaced all this by saying you're not sure (laughs) what the answer is. Um, but you know, give us some idea with these various biases that can have negative effects on, on us in anesthesia and beyond, of course, how do we try to address them in a positive way? Yeah, this is, this is a good question. And uh, the loss of virgin thing is fascinating. You know, now I'm in an institution that's affiliated with Harvard. But, you know, they, they talk about the Harvard undergrads and doing a poll to see who thinks that they were, they did not deserve to be, you know, one of the uh, people admitted to Harvard and they, everybody puts up their hands. Um, yeah, the loss of virgin is real. It's real and I think it's a phenomenon of our the ways our, our brains work. And I'm not sure that that there's a real solution. I think sometimes you get grounded by reaching out to others and getting their input and understanding that everybody's experiencing the same thing. I think in the example I gave with the with the uh what what I hope is that by talking about loss aversion and people becoming more knowledgeable about it, they may realize, hmm, am I not doing this procedure because I'm worried I'm not comfortable with it rather than uh, maybe I should call someone for help and reaching out for others to help. Um, Maybe the way I'm hoping that by educating people, they would be more likely to extend um, a handout to someone else to assist. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah. So let me ask you this. We talked a little at the beginning about system one and system two, system one being this kind of fast, you know, almost instinctual reaction to things um, that can sometimes be really helpful and sometimes lead you wrong. Do we think that training, as in medical training, residency training, helps your system one be better. In other words, you take a brand new CA one and you, you know, put them in an operating room. They really shouldn't be doing much based on system one, right? They need to think hard. We don't want them making those, you know, mistakes. Like you gave the example with the ball and the bat that are so easy to make if you're not really, really thinking carefully. And we need them to think carefully. We need them to remember to turn on the gas and remember to turn on the vent and remember to start the blood pressure cuff. And they don't have a system one that will do those things yet because it's not something that is built into their brain, right? You're not, you don't grow up learning to turn on a ventilator, right? So these are things that, that have to come. But do you think that as you become more of an expert, so you take the, you know, the senior resident or the, uh, the senior attending, that many more things in the operating room can function on system one because they become so automatic? Is that, does that make sense? We'll be back with Dr. Fiat Joe's response to that question in just a sec. Stay with us. 
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Okay, we're back and here's Dr. Fia Joe. Yeah, I think that you're, I think you're right. I think when they first, when you first start as a trainee, you're being very cautious. You're thinking about every step. You're thinking about everything you're doing because you're learning. So you're using a lot of system two, maybe. And then as you gain more experience and you've seen things before and it becomes rote, then you're using system one. And we need both. Um, I think there's a point where you reach expertise where there's still traps, right? They may not be as common, but they're traps where you need uh, to slow down, you need to pay closer attention. And so I think you lose a little bit of that. Um, I personally think um, the whole movement of mindfulness training helps you pay attention better. But even so, there's the whole idea of change blindness, right? Sometimes you'll walk into a room and there's a trainee who's staring at the monitors but doesn't pick up on the fact that the blood pressure is low, even though they've been staring at it. And some people will chastise a trainee for not noticing that, but there's actually, you know, you, I don't know if you've seen these videos that where they ask people to count a basketball being dribbled and the guy in a gorilla suit comes running through and they completely miss it. It's a function of our brains. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so again, I don't know if you can overcome this, but the first step will be to recognize that we have these these uh, tendencies. It's it's fascinating to me how our environment can impact our behavior. Um, there was a really interesting study that I read um, that that I applied to the operating room. So this was a study that was done in an office. They had a plate of cookies outside the office. And they put a sign up on above the cookies that said, take a cookie, leave a dollar. And so they documented how much money was left for a period of time. And um, uh, and then for the second uh, week, they put up a picture above the cookies with a set of eyes and increased the, the amount of money people left when they took the cookies. And we were having an issue in our operating rooms where clinicians were leaving drugs in the top drawer of their anesthesia carts at the end of the day. And the pharmacy would send these nasty grams to people ever so often. It was just frequent. So I decided, well, let's have a little fun with this. Let's see if this actually does anything. So what I did was I took 
some pictures with eyes, printed 30 of them, and stuck them in every anesthesia cart in the top drawer. We documented for a month what was left in the top drawer before I put the set of eyes in and then after. And we had a statistically significant reduction in items left in the top drawers. Um, they were, I never told anybody what this was about. I never mentioned it to anybody. They just appeared. Yeah. But there were discussions on Facebook about these spooky eyes that are in the drawer. So we have this predator response to eyes that is probably like a system one thing. It's a fast system that we don't, we're not even cognizant of. Interesting. That is such a cool study. Uh, <laughs> I would not, I, I mean, because we're talking about it in this context, I, that was what I assumed the result would be. But if you had just asked in, in casual conversation, I would have said, nah, that's not going to make a difference. But it's really interesting that it did. You know, there are some things that you could imagine you never want to become system one and you always want to use system two for. And, uh, you know, the example that came to my mind was if you become, you know, you, you pull out meds from the Pixis and the OR every day, day after day, year after year. And every time you pull them out, you know, you pull Zofran out on Dancitron and it's a blue cap little bottle, right? And you pull it out. And now you've developed this system one that says the little blue bottle, the little blue cap bottles are, are on Dancitron. And so you stop reading it. You just pull out the blue ones and you pull it up and you give it, right, for anti-emetic. And one day it's not going to be Zofran, right? It's going to be somebody put a blue cap on the glycopyrrolate or on the, you know, epinephrine or something. And so that's a time where you'd never want to automate, right? When it comes to to ch- looking at the drug names that you're pulling up. And that's hard to do because we're, I think our brains are built to automate, right? They're, we're built to use system one whenever we can to, to make things fast, right? Absolutely. That is, uh, you're absolutely right. We need to slow down sometimes. And um, when I visited Japan, I learned about the Shinkansen, which is a Japanese bullet train. And the Japanese did some studies which showed that if you're doing anything uh, that, is, um, that, is, that is critical, uh, if you point and say what you're doing, uh, you have fewer errors. So they did some cool studies where they randomly assigned people to point at a color and then push a button on a computer corresponding to that color versus just pushing the button. And they found that if they pointed and said what they were going to do, said red, before they pushed it, they made less errors. Mm. So that's referred to as pointing and calling. And so they adopted this in their train system. And the Shinkansen is one of the safest train systems there is anywhere. They've transported 5 billion passengers with no injuries. And people think that that's part of it. Um, pilots use this as well. They use it. So one thing that would happen was the control tower would say, fly the plane to 10,000 feet. The, the co-pilot would say 10,000 feet. The pilot might've heard 11,000, puts 11,000 in. And these planes were going to the wrong altitude. And one of the things they have in aviation, which we don't have, which we can talk about is uh, anonymous reporting and they're protected to anonymously for So they would report this. And so what they implemented was that the pilots now point at the instrument and say 11,000 feet, and the co-pilot would say, no, that was supposed to be 10,000. They can't move their finger away until the co-pilot points as well. 
So these are some strategies to help us. So one of the things I thought about was like, in medicine, we're giving epinephrine. We're giving all these drugs that can kill you. And we just give it. And often there's nobody checking. We should be pointing and calling. We should be doing something. Um, and so I've decided to study this. So we're, we've got some ideas around some SIM studies where we're going to try to see if this actually is as good as maybe a two-person check. Mm. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's fascinating. And I totally agree with you. The idea that we often are not even carefully looking at the vials, let alone calling it and pointing it and double reading it and, you know, it, it is really striking. And so, and again, it's hard to do, right? It's fighting our nature to, to not automate it, but I think really important to do. Um, since you brought up aviation, let's talk about that because I, as you said, um, in aviation, they're, they're doing a lot. They're using these behavioral economics concepts to improve safety. Um, so what other things can we learn from the aviation industry that you think we could potentially apply that you just mentioned one that you're going to study and that sounds really interesting. Are there other things that we can learn and and potentially apply to our practice from aviation? Yeah, I think, I think really the, there are a couple of things. One, one concept for behavioral economics is to make the right thing, the easy thing to do. And I think aviation has adopted that aviation says people are going to make mistakes. We want to learn about all the mistakes and we want to build a system that's robust, that protects the passengers for the pilot on their worst day. In medicine, we have the concept of you can't make a mistake, which is, I think, flawed. People are going to make mistakes. We should want to know those mistakes and fix the system. Uh, In medicine, we have the kind of the just need to try harder. And I think that's one of the fundamental differences. So one of the things you know, we all know about the miracle on the Hudson where Sullenberger landed the plane. Um, but there was, there's in, probably some information that came from uh, previous flights that was re- reported anonymously that helped them to be able to land that plane. One of the things that happens are bird strikes. You could say, oh, I got hit by a bird, not a big deal, no damage, I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to report it. But pilots could report anonymously, so they report everything anonymously. And so there were these trends, people saw these bird strikes. And so they changed the design of engines to tolerate a certain number of birds. There's a chicken gun that shoots chickens at engines to make sure that they stay contained when they get hit by birds and don't don't disintegrate. And that allowed them to even have a chance to land that plane. Mm. Um, And I like to contrast aviation with medicine, right? So like I said, when complications happen, we all have to report them in, Medicine, we have mandatory reporting like in aviation, but in aviation, there's, there's the anonymous option. You can report anonymously. In medicine, you go to the morbidity and mortality conference or the QI conference or whatever you want to call it, where people engage in a lot of hindsight bias, kind of, I knew that was going to happen. Sometimes it's true, but a lot of times it, it, it's, it's actually an illusion that they knew that this would happen. And so what happens in aviation is they collect near-miss data. So they collect a lot of near-miss data through these anonymous reports. We get the big bad things. When big bad things happen, people report it, but people are not gonna tell you, oh, I picked up a vial of epinephrine instead of on Dancitron, but didn't give it um, because I, you know, the vials look the same. So we miss a lot of near-miss data in medicine. And so this, this is one of the things that I think we need to address. The other thing is in aviation, before you fly a plane, you get a report of everything that's happened with this type of aircraft over the past month. 
Um, in medicine, it's really your personal experience. Have you experienced this before? Um, or maybe you got an email three months ago about something that happened that you don't remember uh, or a memo that stuck somewhere on a wall. And so we really need to think about feeding information back into the system. So when I'm seeing my pre-op for the patient for the next day, I'm getting information about the last, how many number, the last year of these types of cases, let's say it's a tonsillectomy, what complications have we seen? What things should I be prepared for? And maybe I've never experienced those things, but now I have the institutional knowledge. We really need in medicine to figure out a way with all the technology we have to bring institutional knowledge to our clinicians who are not, necess not necessarily as experienced and even those who are experienced, you know, um, so I think that's I think that's where that's the direction we need to move in. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's so those are such great points. And, and it, you know, every time I hear these comparisons to aviation, I always think, how are we not doing it? It yeah. seems so clear. And people have been talking about this for years. And, you know, I, I did a podcast interview with Peter Pronovost probably three or four years ago about high reliability organizations. And, you know, the, he, he was talking about Navy fighter pilots landing on an aircraft carrier and how, just like you said, they've really focused on how to make the safe thing, the easy thing, and, you know, how to, how to make sure everyone's comfortable reporting any possible, you know, concern and, and focus on what could go wrong and how to prevent it. And we just, we are, are slow to pick up on that for some reason. The other thing that I, I, I noticed, we have a friend who's a pilot and, you know, pilots, anytime they need training, they get, they go to work. It's, it's a paid work day, but they don't fly. They train, right? Mm -hmm. And what happens to us doctors? Or when we need train, we have to do a module on this or that, or we need training. What happens? Well, it gets assigned. You do it in the evening. You do it on the weekend, right? I mean, there's no institutional buy-in to say, hey, some of this stuff is important and we're going to pay you and have you do it during the day instead of operating or instead of doing anesthesia, right? It's just not part of the culture. And so it's not being prioritized. You are absolutely right. I think that is, a, that is really important. We have to value these things and, and people should get paid for, for doing it. Um, the interesting I find, the interesting thing that I found is that when pilots were being asked to adopt these high reliability practices way back when, they said, well, they're not like us. They're not aviation. You know, we're, they, they're not aviation. We're too complicated. I've heard that a lot from colleagues that, no, we're not like pilots. We're too complicated. No, I don't think we're too complicated. And in fact, I think we're going to be replaced by machines in the future. <laughs> and uh, I, think, I think adopting some of these practices is critical uh, if we want to move patient safety forward. Yeah, yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's, it always seems too complicated until you figure it out, right? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how it is. And I'm sure... That, like you said, that's what that's what folks in aviation were saying, and and then they applied the concepts, and it really has worked for them. Um, so, all right, is there anything else, John, that we haven't covered that you know, either examples of biases, ways you think we can get around them, um, comparisons to aviation, anything we can use that folks out there can can think about to try to improve the outcomes for their patients? Yeah, you know, you mentioned Peter Provost, and in 
In the book, Black Box Thinking by Matt Syed, one I highly recommend, he talks about, and maybe Peter talked about this when he, when you interviewed him, but he talks about a case he had of a abdominal surgery where the surgeon had been operating for a while and then entered the abdomen and the patient got hypotensive and he suspected that the patient was having an allergic reaction. So he asked the surgeon to take his gloves off and the surgeon refused and they got into this tussle in the operating room and he threatened to call, I don't know, some administrator. Eventually the surgeon takes his gloves off. You know, they're resuscitating this patient. Eventually they find out that the patient did have a latex allergy and Peter was right. And it was just an example of cognitive dissonance. And cognitive dissonance basically is when your belief does not jive with the reality that you're experiencing. So you only have two options. You can either stop what you're doing or decide you're not gonna believe what's happening. Um, and so that's another bias that comes into play sometimes in what we do. And I'll tell you, I'll give you the example of um, uh, Elaine Bromley. You've heard of that, uh, that, that case with Elaine Bromley and a United Airlines air, uh, aircraft that was flying from New York to Oregon in December of 1973. This flight had a very experienced crew. Um, uh, World War I veteran uh, experienced crew. And when they were about to land, they put the landing gear down. There was a really loud noise and the pilot sent the co-pilot to figure out what was going on. They figured that the landing gear wasn't coming out. And so the pilot started working on how to address this. They were in a holding pattern. The co-pilot recognized that they were low on fuel. So he says, we're low on fuel. No response from the pilot. About 15 minutes later, he's like, we're low on fuel. Pilot says, oh, we have about 10 minutes left of fuel. He's like, 10 minutes? That's going to run us really low. And then the co-pilot realizes that they lost an engine. It's like, we lost an engine. The, the, the pilot says, why? He's like, fuel, I told you so. They crashed, 10 passengers died. And I thought this situation was kind of analogous to Elaine Bromley, where she had an experienced crew team of anesthesiologists. She was coming for endosinus surgery, pretty healthy, but had some limited cervical spine motion. The plan was for an LMA, in, induction, can't get the LMA in, struggle with ventilation, struggle with intubation. ENT surgeon comes in, they're both working, struggling with intubation, trying these different techniques, fiber optic, you name it. A nurse comes in the room and says, the tracheostomy kit is here. They don't respond, they continue fixated on what they're doing. Eventually uh, she, she dies. And I think both of these scenarios illustrate the fact that we can get fixated, task fixation. When you're doing a complicated task, time goes by, seems to slow down, um, and you don't appreciate how long it has elapsed. So both of these situations, people were fixated. They engage probably in some loss aversion, like we talked about. Maybe I haven't done a tracheostomy, so that's not the first thing I'm going to do. Um, and, and, and so these kind of issues come into play in our work lives. And I think those examples illustrate the importance of listening to other team members when we're in a crisis situation.
Yeah. Yeah. That, that's such a tragic, but, but important example. And, you know, it's, I've seen, you know, reenactments of that, that people have filmed to kind of give people this. It's really impactful because especially for those of us in anesthesia, you can, I think, picture yourself in that situation. And as easy as it is to say, well, of course I would have, you know, not kept trying that, or I would have asked the the surgeon to do the trach, or I would have done a crike or whatever. It's, you know, when you're in that situation, it, as you said, it's so easy to get fixated, to not want to admit what's really happening because it's scary to have that loss aversion of, of feeling like, you know, I'm, I'm going to, it's going to be a failure for me if I can't get this tube in um, and to not realize how much is going on. And, and so one thing is, as you said, I mean, listening to those around you on the team is so crucial. And another I think is, and why I think it's important for people to hear these examples that you're giving is that you can start to check yourself. So, you know, for anesthesia attendings, for example, you know, your resident, especially new residents might be struggling a little bit with an intubation and, you know, it's pretty tempting to just let them keep trying, but you can lose track of time that way and realize that if you wait till the set starts to drop, you know, that thing's 10 seconds behind you, the patient may actually be fairly hypoxic. And so going into it, knowing that and checking yourself and saying, you know what, no, even if the set is still a hundred percent after, after, you know, a couple tries of, you know, over a couple of minutes, we're going to mask again, right? Even though they haven't desatted yet. And that's a better strategy than waiting for the desaturation sound to, to wake you up to what's going on. You know, but so building in these habits to defy the biases and the heuristics yeah. are really important. Right. Algorithms will help and things like that. The other thing, Jed, that we didn't talk about but is important, and I, I just want to mention this quickly, is that we need to set defaults appropriately because people have a bias towards going with the default and, um, you know, in our operating rooms, our ventilators default to zero peep. So nobody gets peep. Just add four peep, everybody gets uh, an appropriate amount of peep. Um, uh, when I went to dinner at some restaurants, they bring you an iPad for the tip. And, it, you know, they set the default to 20% as the minimum. You can change it. But what happens? They get higher tips. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's there's a whole thing about people and uh, organ donation and the way you ask the question, opt-in versus opt-out. So I think there are opportunities. Low-hanging fruit for us is let's set defaults um, the way that produces the best outcomes for our, our patients uh, is another thing to, to consider. Yeah, that's so important. And, you know, people will also hear the term nudges, right? So you, yeah. you build in nudges or defaults that will push you in the right direction. We thought about this around tidal volume. So we had some vents that used to default to 600 cc's for tidal volume, right? Which is, except for very tall men, is, you know, right. way too much. And it just seemed like it would make so much sense to have a lower default, right? Yeah. Um, you can always adjust it up, but, you know, you, you want to have that. And this is, of course, for adults, it would be insane to have 600 for a baby. But, you know, right. um, but even for most adults, it's too much. So thinking about that, can, and I love your, your, the eyes in the drawer, right? That's a nudge. That's what that is. You can ignore the right. eyes. You're not forcing anybody to do anything. Correct. But it's a nudge, right? Like, hey, people are paying attention. <laughs> and... So I think building in those nudges around, uh, around setting defaults, um, around thinking about how we can, we can adjust things or how we can set things up for success, is a, it makes a big, big difference. And like you said, we need to do a better job 
of paying attention to where we can make change before major root cause analyses have to take place. You know, right. if, if we get more near miss reporting, if we think about how we can change the system instead of blaming an individual because something bad happened on their watch, we just use it as an opportunity to look at how we can improve the system. That's a much more productive way to make things safer. Yeah. So Jed, one of the things that I'm currently working on is trying to create an anonymous reporting system, um, a patient safety organization that will focus on anonymous reporting. So I would love for you to share that once we get it up and going, because I think that's a way we can gather some of the information that they get in aviation. Um, because every, every hospital has its kind of, they call it different things, the SARES, et cetera. But a lot of them have become kind of tools to punish other people for mm-hmm. for something they did. And, and, and I think the intent is great, but and they're often not anonymous, but a truly anonymous system that's, that's protected um, from discovery, I think is needed. And so we're trying to do that. Love it. That's fantastic. And definitely we are, uh, I will be happy to put that link up and, and, and shout it out on the show. So let me know when it's ready. I think you're exactly right that that's badly needed. Well, John, I've, I've taken a lot of your time, so I really appreciate it. This is so much really useful things here that people can focus on, start to work into their own practice, start to think about how they can make adjustments at their own hospitals and ways that may improve patient safety by by realizing some of these biases, some of these heuristics that affect our practice and thinking about ways to get around them, to be safer, whether that's defaults and nudges, whether that's checklists so that you have to use system two, you can't just rely on system one. Um, some of it is going to be training people well so that their system one is is appropriate for certain situations and some of it is going to be making sure we're never using system one for certain things like taking vials out of the of the uh, pixis and then uh, some of it is going to be like you said and i think one of them you know i'd almost say if there's one thing you said and you said it early and then you said it again that i would really want people to take home it's listen to others on the team because like that nurse who wheeled in that tray and said the the tracheostomy tray is here and no one paid any attention, but if they had, it might've short circuited them in their own thinking to say, Oh, we need to do this. Right. But they didn't listen. So like you said, other people may not be stuck in the same biases. They may not be going down those same heuristic pathways. And so they may be able to help you out, but you've got to be willing to listen. So that's really key. That's you. You summarized it perfectly, Jed. That was uh, uh, an awesome summary. Thank you. All right, John. Well, thank you. Let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something for the audience that you'd recommend they check out? Yeah, I like. I read a lot of books. Um, clearly, I think you should check out the behavioral economics books. But one of the books that I really enjoyed was Destiny of the Republic which is a fascinating book about James Garfield, one of our presidents. And it really brings together the invention of the telephone, the invention of the metal detector, um, aseptic technique into one story about James Garfield. James Garfield Mm. was a fascinating president. He was, I think he was, he had the shortest tenure because I'll tell you, he was shot. That happens uh, in the book. But the, the, the way that is written, I think it's uh, 
written by Millard, Candace Millard, maybe. It's a, it's a great book. I highly recommend it. Awesome. It sounds great. Um, I will definitely check it out. And, and I had earlier on a prior episode recommended Michael J. Sullivan's uh, fantasy series um, called the Riria Chronicles, uh, which were fantastic. They actually ended up being some of really my favorite books I've read in a long time. And so for folks who tried that and liked them, I will tell you that I went back and read some of his other books. So he wrote a series called Legends of the First Empire. It's a six book series that goes back a couple thousand years before the Riria Chronicles were set and kind of tells the origin stories of the world in which the Riria Chronicles are set. And it's, I will say it's not as amazing as the Riria Chronicles because I really thought those were just incredible. So, but so it's still- Jed, Jed, which one do I read first? You re- read the Riria Chronicles first. It's R-I-Y-R-I-A, Riria, by Michael J. Sullivan. So there's the Riria Chronicles and the Riria something else. There's two Riria- triad triads okay. two riria um groups of books and one's called the chronicles and one's called something else read those first those are w- the ones he wrote first and then if you like those which if you like fantasy but you're going to like these they're great then if you kind of have this interest in well what about where you know you kind of hear stories told during the Riria chronicles of, of the past if you want if you're interested in going back to the past and learning about it um, then read these. They're very good. Uh, they're just not quite as as all gripping as the original ones, but they're very all good. Right. And, and I'm going with the original. I'll let you know yeah. what I think. Thanks. Yeah, check them out. Check them out. All right. So yeah, Michael J. Sullivan's books in general. And then um, if you read the Riria and you liked them, go back and read Legends of the First Empire. All right, John, thank you so much. This was such a great discussion. I learned a lot. I hope our listeners did too. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Okay. That was fantastic. Really interesting stuff. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com. You can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. You can also follow the conversation on Facebook, on the Akrak group, and you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jay Wolpaw, and we're at Akrak Podcast. We also now have a fantastic Instagram page. And you can enjoy the conversation on any of those platforms. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC or look up Jay Wolpaw on Venmo or go to paypal.me slash ACRAC and leave a donation or become a patron. We are so grateful to those who have already done that. Thank you so much. Huge thanks, as always, to our tech lead, Dr. Brian Park, to our production assistants, Dr. Kimia Kashkuli and Dr. April Liu, and, of course, to our social media manager, Ryan Okonski, who has done a fantastic job setting up the Instagram account. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Quo, and you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. John Fiaggio, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, 
visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.